Good day. Uh, this is Free City Radio. It is Tuesday, the 21st of September, uh, 2021, of course. Um, thanks for being with us. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph in Montreal. This is the 60th edition of our weekly podcast. Uh, so thanks for being with us um, week in and week out. Um, every week I make an effort to bring a, a voice that I think is doing insightful, interesting, important work, um, uh, both here locally in GeoGeage, Montreal, uh, and sometimes internationally. Um, today is going to be a conversation uh, with Bob Jeffcott of the Maquila Solidarity Network. Uh, that's an organization that uh, for a couple of decades has worked to draw attention to the working conditions uh, the labor conditions of uh, garment sector workers. Uh, it's an organization that started in the context of drawing um, uh, solidarities with the maquila workers uh, in Mexico. This was in the context of the um, efforts to critique the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, which was uh, being negotiated um, in the 1990s and was a point of protest for environmental and labor organizations um, who were uh, highlighting the fact that trade agreements such as NAFTA really were about the commodification of the environment, labor, and and our economy. Um, and that is a critique that extends across numerous trade agreements. Uh, the Maquila Solidarity Network uh, built uh, support between uh, Maquila workers and organizations representing workers in Mexico and labor unions, both in Canada and the U.S. Um, their work now is more international. Uh, they've been pushing uh, to uh, highlight the condition of garment sector workers across the world, from Bangladesh to Vietnam and recently in Ethiopia. I think their work's important. I wanted to highlight where they're at and... Um, I'll just leave it at that. This is my conversation with Bob Jeffcott from the Maquila Solidarity Network. Yeah, well, I'm Bob Jeffcott, and I'm one of the founders of the Maquila Solidarity Network. Um, so that goes way back. We started almost, well, over 25 years ago. Uh, and at the very beginning, we were focused on the reason we had the name Maquila Solidarity Network was we were focused on the Maquiladora factories along the border with Mexico and Canada. And that was at the period of negotiations of the original tri-national tri free trade agreement, NAFTA. So we were concerned at that time that the focus was on this idea that Mexicans were stealing our jobs. And we had a different perspective. We were trying to promote solidarity with the Mexican workers and supporting their struggles to improve their standards as well as their wages. So that's how it started. But one year later, we got involved in our first campaign that wasn't about Mexico. It was actually about uh, firings of workers who were trying to organize a union in El Salvador. And we were lobbying the gap at that time to ensure that the workers who were fired were reinstated. And in that period, companies would respond by saying, well, we don't own the factory. It's not our responsibility. So I think the struggle over the years has been on the first hand to get companies 
to acknowledge that they actually do share responsibility. The major brands do share responsibility what happens to the workers who make their products. So that's basically the history. And you know, in more recent years, we've been involved in campaigns such as the about the Bangladesh Accord on fire and building safety. Uh, that was about something bigger, bigger than just people being fired in one factory. Okay, well, there's a lot to unpack there. So I think there's three main points. So I'll just say, first of all, um, from your perspective, I mean, obviously there is a very important uh, notion that uh, is central to the US labor movement, which is solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, I just was wondering if you could just briefly talk about, um, because I know that within the US labor movement, there has been you know, different elements that have been really open to and supported this idea of thinking about labor across borders, whereas some, elements have been more protectionist. So yeah. I'm just wondering, like an organization like yours really encourages um, a sort of a framework of understanding solidarity between workers across borders. Can you talk about the importance of that idea and how that relates to the US labor movement? Well, I could talk also about the Canadian labor movement because we're, we're centered in, yeah. in Canada. But um, I think what's happened over the years is there has been uh, a growing sense among unions, both in the United States and Canada, as well as in Europe, that they need to build common cause with uh, workers and their struggles in other countries, particularly in globalized industries. And by that, I mean ones like the garment sector, one in which you have workers who are producing for local manufacturers oftentimes, or even for foreign investors, but the they're producing for brands and retailers in the North American and European market. So a, a traditional strategy of just saying, we're gonna to try to keep the jobs in Canada or the United States just doesn't work. In fact, what usually happens is that these companies are hopping from one country to the other. If wages get too high in one country or if the, the local governments have the temerity to actually enforce their labor laws, they shift production to another country. So we've seen that shift and we've seen it happen where more recently they're even shifting to, to Ethiopia, uh, saying Bangladesh is too expensive. Uh, you know, Vietnam is too expensive. China is too expensive for their shifting production to other countries. So a strategy that's just built on keeping jobs here, particularly in the garment sector, just doesn't work. And I think unions are recognizing that now and have been for quite a few years. So yes, that, that what we've been attempting to do in, in uh, for instance, in Bangladesh, the Rana Plaza disaster, in which more than 1,100 workers died when a building that held five factories, garment factories, collapsed. And that, that factory or the building housing those factories had been visited by social auditing firms from a number of companies, none of whom had noticed that there were cracks in the wall of the building that would result in it, in it, in it falling apart. So Canadian unions, for instance, a delegation of Canadian unions went to Bangladesh, visited the site of the Rana Plaza disaster and came back uh, and have been building solidarity with workers and worker support organizations in Bangladesh ever since, ever since that happened. So I think once people, once people see firsthand what the consequences are of globalization in industries like the garment industry, 
they're quite prepared to build solidarity back home in their own unions for the struggles of those workers. So often when people think about critiquing corporate practice within the garment sector and the Makila Solidarity Network obviously was, um, as you mentioned, focused first on the Makila Doras um, in the context of the North American Free Trade Agreement and supporting workers in that context. But the outsourcing of labor from corporations, um, subsidiary um, sort of systems, uh, often I think, you know, especially even today with um, sort of like hashtag frameworks, it's often um, sort of uh, directed towards people targeting a specific company. Whereas like the situation with outsourcing creates a complex web of responsibility. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you could uh, detail a bit more the importance of understanding that sort of system uh, I know that your work fo has focused on that in, in various ways and in various contexts globally um, over the years. Yeah, well, I think what you have to, when you look at this particular industry, it's one where, and I think many people don't uh, understand this yet, when you're talking about a factory producing in a place like Vietnam uh, or China or or any any countries that are government producing countries for the North American market, there isn't just one brand that's sourcing from one factory. It's multiple brands sourcing from the same factory or group of factories. So that you actually have a situation where if you target only one company, you're not really addressing the root causes of the problem. And I think one of the things we're moving towards is looking at situations where there are multiple companies, not just in one factory, but in one country, in multiple factories in one country. And I, I always fall back on this one of the, the Bangladesh Accord because what, what that was, was there was a, basically an, er, an eruption happened throughout the industry when that building collapsed. And people realized that there were multiple brands using that same factory, including Loblaw in Canada. Uh, and the brand, the Loblaw Joe Fresh brand was found in the rubble of the Rana Plaza building, which is what forced them to take action. Uh, but basically what we found was there were uh, hundreds of companies, major brands and retailers who were using factories in the Rana Plaza building and other factories in Bangladesh, and they were shared facilities. And what we ended up with fighting for and gaining was an accord between trade unions and the brands and the retailers that was signed eventually by over 200 companies. And 200 companies had to be part of a program, which was an independent inspection program for over 2,000 factories in Bangladesh. So we weren't just talking anymore about one brand in one factory and we target that one brand. We were talking about an entire industry and a problem that permeated through the entire industry. And how do we deal with it? What that did is go beyond private sector social auditing and actually establish a system and a program uh, that was between trade union organizations and companies with an independent inspection program with health and safety training for workers in those factories with a complaints process for the workers. And the companies didn't investigate. It was an independent inspection program that did the investigations. So I think what's happening in our movement right now is we're moving beyond looking at individual corporate responsibility we're moving towards things that are like legally binding agreements between groups of companies and trade union organizations. And we're a witness signatory for that particular one. 
and, and, and also for enforcement mechanisms that go beyond individual social auditors, private sector social auditors who go in visiting factories. So I think the shift, the fundamental shift that has happened is people are now looking at agreements that are legally binding on companies where they share liability, not just responsibility, but actually legal liability. And the other trend that's parallel to that is looking at government uh, due diligence legislation that would hold companies accountable and open to court cases from the victims of what's occurring in their supply chains. Those two things are happening simultaneously. And I think so we're really moving beyond the voluntary and beyond just targeting one company or another company about a particular case. But we still have to deal with the cases because workers get fired every day for trying to organize a union. And we have been successful in many cases in getting those workers reinstated and allowing for unions to operate in those kind of plants. So, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, people might, and that's healthy, be skeptical about uh, sort of like responses that involve corporations in terms of mitigating systemic abuses towards workers, like you're talking about the fallout from the Rana Plaza disaster. But so, so in that regard, I'm just wondering if you could speak about, you know, and Makila Solidarity Network has been you know, linked to social activist movements for many years now, decades, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I've heard about your work for at least 15 years. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the role that like all the social activism around like expressing solidarity with Rana Plaza um, workers, many who lost their lives, of course, mm-hmm. um, plays. Uh, as well as the tangible specific follow-up that happened from labor union and solidarity organizations. Um, Just if you could just highlight how like constant attention and focus actually can have results essentially is what I'm trying to look at. Right. Well, I think one of the most successful things in the movement has been the activism of students and primarily university students on particular cases but also on the creation of the Worker Rights Consortium. Uh, the Worker Rights Consortium is a US-based monitoring organization that's totally different from private sector social auditing organizations. And it's one that was created really in response to students against sweatshops. Uh, and this is also, I mean, everyone who is a university student or a professor or somehow connected to universities knows that universities also have brands they have sports teams, they have, wear, they have clothes, uh, sports gear, all kinds of things that bear uh, the university name or logo. And that means that universities have tremendous purchasing power that they can actually apply to companies uh, that are their licensees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so basically what we've seen is, you know, mobilizations of students on particular cases one in particular was in Honduras, uh, where there was a there was cancellation of orders by hundreds of universities in the U.S. and Canada, that then resulted in the establishment of an independent union in a factory. Uh, and that's in response the, to students against sweatshops. That's right. That was students Network. against sweatshops in both the U.S. and Canada at that time. It's not as strong in Canada as it once was, but it's still quite strong in the U.S. Uh, and the Worker Rights Consortium was created as a response to students against sweatshops work. Unlike 
other initiatives, unlike the Fair Labor Association, for instance, it's one where there are no companies on its board of directors, or uh, it's not in any way beholding to companies. It's totally independent. It does far better inspections of factories, uh, demands, it publishes not only the information as to what violations were found, but it publishes updates and they name the factory, they name the brands, and they publish information on exactly what corrective action has been taken, how progress is going, what is still to be done. So there's a tremendous amount of transparency in what they do. And they have, even though they're a very small organization, they have a lot of weight and companies pay attention to what they say because they know they have the students behind them. And students can mobilize if companies refuse to take action. So I guess the last question that um, I, I feel is really um, um, links a lot of what you've shared uh, is the ways that um, thinking about like the, the globalization of industries in relation to the globalization of activism. So your 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 organization, as you've mentioned, focused first on like thinking about workers in maquiladoras uh, in the context of the North American Free Trade Agreement. But as you've outlined, um, you've addressed uh, examples of systemic abuses of garment workers in Honduras, in Bangladesh. You've you've addressed briefly, of course, like reliance on garment workers in Vietnam. And now today it's uh, more and more in Ethiopia. Uh, if you can think about uh, and offer any reflections, it'd be appreciated about also how movements and activism and like networks of organization and labor unions also can respond on a global level and thinking about things in that sort of transnational sense, why that's important. Well, one of the things maybe we should go back to Mexico um, because since, since we were first involved, what's happened more recently is there's a new trade agreement, as you know, this between Mexico, the US and Canada. And as part of that trade agreement, it has something that was never there before in any other trade agreement, which is that there's actually ability for uh, in unions to provoke inspections of particular factories where workers' rights have been uh, violated and to even affect their ability to, to uh, export the products from that factory across the border to the United States or to the Canadian market. So we now have, after years and years and years, networks that exist between trade union, independent trade union organizations in Mexico and trade union organizations in the US and Canada. And recently there was a vote at a General Motors plant uh, in Guanajuato state in which workers voted to reject their existing collective bargaining agreement and are now trying to organize an independent union. And this was part of the reason that this was possible, which is very seldom possible in Mexico, is because the trade agreement in this case was used by unions in Mexico and Canada and the US to call out this violations of workers' rights that had taken place in that factory and establish an agreement between the Mexican government and the US government that actually meant that workers could vote on their collective bargaining agreement without any harassment. It was observed by the ILO. It was observed by the, next, the Mexican uh, Electoral Commission uh, and the unions in Canada and the United States were watching it closely. So this didn't come about 
you know, by accident. This is after years and years of relations being built and maintained between trade union organizations and labor rights organizations in the three countries. Uh, so that's totally different than what I remember when we first started out, when people often were saying and fearing that Mexican workers are stealing our jobs. This is in an auto plant and it was Canadian auto worker unions and US unions that supported the workers in this particular case. And the workers will end up with an independent union that can no negotiate improvements in wages and, and working conditions. So that's a dramatic change from what we saw when we started. Right on. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak today, Bob. All right. Well, thank you, Stefan. Thank you. That was a conversation with Bob Jeffcott from the Maquila Solidarity Network, an organization I think that has done really important work to highlight the conditions of garment sector workers uh, globally, looking at uh, first the conditions in Mexico, in the Maquilas, but then internationally um, today looking at the sort of systemic injustices around garment sector workers globally and the campaigns and efforts by groups like Students Against Sweatshops, which you heard about in this exchange, to uh, that are drawing attention uh, to the conditions of uh, garment sector workers. Thank you, Bob Jeffcott, for joining Free City Radio. Um, I am your host, Stefan Christoph. Um, it is the 20th of September, and this is the 60th edition of Free City Radio. It's really a pleasure to share this weekly broadcast with you. Um, I'm going to uh, go out with a piece of music uh, that a friend of mine, Nicholas Jarre, worked on uh, as part of a soundtrack for a film that came out of Chile called Emma. And um, it's a great piece. Uh, I'll be back next Tuesday. Uh, Free City Radio shares a new podcast every Tuesday if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Um, this is really a project that is shared by word of mouth. So if you like what you're hearing, um, please uh, let others know. I hope you have a good day and take it easy. I'll talk to you next Tuesday.
Thank you. 